I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Habakkuk chapter 3, Habakkuk 3. And the guys have some Bibles. They're going to make their way to the back. If you need a Bible, just get their attention and they'll get you one of those. It's marked for you at Habakkuk 3. And keep that Bible, please, as our gift to you. We want everyone to own a copy of God's Word. Bring it back with you next week and each week as we always look at God's Word together as part of our worship. Some years ago, I attended a seminar that included instruction on, among other things, how to identify potential leaders in a congregation. The leader of that seminar rightly emphasized that character is the most important trait of a leader. Someone asked him, okay, actual leaders must be people of character, but how do you identify whether someone has the character to be identified as a potential leader? What should you look for in a potential leader? His answer was this. You should look for someone who is humble and teachable. It's a very good answer. I think you could reduce it to humility because, in fact, if you're truly humble, you will be teachable. It's only pride that can say, I know the way it should go in all circumstances. I know this is not the right way. People should listen to me. Only pride can say those things without first being instructed by those who, by virtue of knowledge, both intellectual and experiential, have a clearer perspective. We've all known people who haven't really done much of anything who like to talk about how things should be done. Now, of course, none of us are like that, but we've known people like that. Do you know, getting advice from the wise is not just good advice. It's the directive of God. God tells us that the requirement for gaining wisdom is indeed what that seminar leader said. Proverbs chapter 11, with humility comes wisdom. Humility is required for wisdom, and the one who has it will be one who listens. A wise man listens to advice. He'll seek to be with and he'll seek to learn from wise people. So the Bible says, he who walks with the wise grows wise. So getting advice from the wise is not just good advice. It's the directive of God. And if we don't have this trait, if we don't have humility that learns from the wisdom of others, then we're disobeying God, saying, in effect, I can take or leave what you say, God. And if I won't listen to God about the need to listen, how is it that I'll be corrected? How will I grow? How will I mature? How will I become wise? Most important, how will I learn what it is to be like Christ? Now, the truth is we've all spouted off in ignorance from time to time. But the person of humility and teachability is able to move beyond that and is able to become mature because he can be corrected. When confronted with truth about himself, he takes it as a word to the wise. And so he takes it to heart and it changes him or her. Habakkuk did that. Habakkuk had spoken in ignorance when he expressed his frustrations over God's plan. His frustrations arose from the fact that he didn't see all that God sees. And he was not satisfied with just having a limited perspective. He had to know why. But he also had the humility and thus the teachability 
to be corrected. And God taught him. God taught him in chapter 2 of Habakkuk, and he listened, and he learned, and he changed. Now, you might say, well, yeah, if God talked to me, I'd listen too. So let me ask you, does, does God talk to you? Where would that be? You know, the teachings that we had on the screen from Proverbs just a bit ago, are those not the teachings of God Almighty? Is that not God speaking to you and, and speaking to me? And so with that in mind, let's look at God's word together and let's learn together this morning. In chapter 3 of Habakkuk, we see the prayer of a man who has been changed by the truth of God. Truth that he was willing to listen to and to be shaped by. And so verse 1 says, this is a prayer of Habakkuk the prophet. This is the heading for the prayer, a superscription like those that you'll find in the book of Psalms. In fact, we have here a a very well-reasoned poem. It's composed as a prayer and it's expressed by Habakkuk to God. And it says there, on Shigionoth. Now that word Shigionoth is most likely a musical term. In fact, verses 3, 9, and 13 have the word Selah. Now if you have the latest New International Version, they've included that in a footnote on verse 3 because the precise meaning of Selah is unknown, though most take it to be a musical term. In fact, that term Selah is used 71 times in 39 different psalms. And the last sentence of the book of Habakkuk, down in verse 19, says this, for the director of music on my stringed instruments. Habakkuk composed a prayer of praise and thanksgiving that was to be offered to God, and he composed this prayer to be used musically in the worship of God in the temple. Now today, I prayed a prayer that's found in a book of beautiful and deeply theological prayers of the Puritans. It's a book called The Valley of Vision. If you don't have that book, I would encourage you to get it. I think we have it in our resource center. I'm quite sure that we carry it. If they're out of it, they'll get it for you. The Valley of Vision. One of the prayers in that book has been set to music in a song we sometimes sing called, Oh Great God. And so that practice of setting prayers to music, like Habakkuk did, continues today. I've said that this prayer shows that Habakkuk was changed by the truth. Now, why do I say that? Well, look at his first prayer. Look what he says back in chapter 1. If you go back to chapter 1 and verse 2, he says, How long, Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen? Or cry out to you violence, but you do not save? And then in verse 6 of chapter 1, God says to Habakkuk that he's indeed going to do something about the moral problems in Habakkuk's nation, about which Habakkuk is complaining But God says he's going to use the pagan and dreaded and despised Babylonians to accomplish it. He says that in verse 6 of chapter 1. To that, Habakkuk objects, saying, in effect, you can't do that. Okay, I want you to do something about this. But you can't do it that way. In verse 13 of chapter 1. Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrongdoing. Why, then, do you tolerate the treacherous Why are you silent while the wicked, and he has in mind here now the Babylonians, swallow up those more righteous than themselves? 
So here he is in chapter 1 telling God, you can't do it this way. But then when you come to chapter 3, he says, Lord, in verse 2, I have heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds, Lord. So something has happened between chapters 1 and 3 to alter Habakkuk's perspective. In the words of the title of this series, Habakkuk has gone from fear to faith. And now his example can teach us how to properly approach our God in prayer. So we're going to see that together this morning. Let's pray and ask God to help us as we do. Father, we thank you that we're here. And we are here, as with all things, by your divine appointment. I thank you for every person that has come to worship, some to simply observe. But I thank you that we're all here. And I thank you now that we have your word open before us. Indeed, you do speak to us, not individually, not audibly, not verbally. You speak to us in the pages of Holy Scripture. Help us to see it then for what it is. It is your word to us. And as such, help us to take it seriously, sober-mindedly, and with a willingness to obey it. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. What happened to transform Habakkuk's perspective was what we've seen in weeks past in in chapter 2, which is truth from God by which Habakkuk had the humility to be taught. And that change is displayed in the content of this prayer that's found in chapter 3. Now, we have an outline inserted for you in your program each week. If you don't have that out yet, I encourage you to take it out so that you can follow along. We're going to see from this prayer, first of all, that how we pray shows what we think about God. Habakkuk's believing complaint in chapter 1, and if you were with us in weeks prior, you heard me explain what I mean by that. He was complaining, but the good news is it was a believing complaint. It was based on what he knew about God, and things didn't fit for him in terms of what was happening versus what he knew to be true about God. So his believing complaint in chapter 1, including him telling God what he should do and what he cannot do. You should judge what's going on now, but no, you can't do it the way you've planned God. But now in verse 2 of chapter 3, he's saying to God, Lord, I've heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds, Lord. He's gone from telling God what to do to praising him for what he does. And this reminds us that, as I say in the outline, God is sovereign. So we should approach him with humility. Two weeks ago, back in chapter 2, We saw that God assured Habakkuk that although he was going to use the Babylonians to accomplish his purpose with Habakkuk's nation of Judah, he was also going to judge Babylon for its own wickedness. And from chapter uh, verse 6 to verse 20 of chapter 2, God pronounced five judgments on Babylon, each marked by the word of warning, woe. After God recounted all he was going to do with Babylon and why he was going to do it, chapter 2 ends in verse 20 this way. Chapter 2 and verse 20. The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. And you see, friends, that is what changed Habakkuk's perspective. 
he was reminded anew of who God is and in turn of his relationship under this God. You see, every misconception about prayer is first a misconception about God. And the misconceptions about God that we breathe in our prayers are due to the false understandings about God we carry with us in our lives. Habakkuk had complained about the wickedness of his own countrymen and the fact that God was apparently doing nothing about it. And then God said he was indeed preparing to act, but he would use the Babylonians. And then Habakkuk objected in part because you can't use people that are worse than we are to judge us. At the end of verse 13 in chapter 1, he says to God, the Babylonians swallow up those, notice, more righteous than themselves. He's saying we're bad, but we're better than they are. So you can't do it this way, God. But now he's seen a vision of the sovereign Lord in his holy temple. And none of that now matters because now he's viewing things not from his perspective, but from God's perspective. Compared to God, the Babylonians are indeed evil. But so are my people, now Habakkuk realizes. And so am I. When God becomes uppermost in our thinking, we no longer make comparisons to others because God is the ultimate reference point and he can then do as he pleases. I've said before that I think many Christians who are appalled at the overt and blasphemous prosperity gospel of televangelists like Joel Osteen, and there's a long list of them, that many of us are appalled at that. And yet at the same time, We harbor a kind of prosperity gospel in our hearts. And we know that we harbor that kind of prosperity gospel in our hearts when we complain about what God has allowed into our lives. And this is especially so when we think of how faithful we've been to God. And so we wonder why he's allowing this trial. When we think of all that we've done... And that's what we're thinking about. And that's where our minds go. Then it's a sure sign that we also think there should be some payoff in this life. That if I've kept the rules and I've served faithfully, it should go well with me. Or if at least not always always well, not like this, not like what you're doing now. And friends, please understand, that's a sort of prosperity gospel and it is false. When we have this mindset, our prayers are really... Our prayers are really in our own name rather than in Jesus' name. Even if we say in Jesus' name at the end of the prayer. And God will not acknowledge our prayers when we approach him in that way. We must, if we would have God answer our prayers, give up any thought that we have any claims upon what God does or any claims on forcing God to do our bidding. Habakkuk's perspective was changed radically when his focus moved from himself to the character of God. God is sovereign and he can and should do as he pleases. And friends, only when we're humbled by comparing ourselves with God rather than others will we have this biblical mindset. See, much of the discouragement, the despondency, the depression that many of us struggle with. Much of that comes because we're looking at other people. We look at other people and we say, my life should be more like that. They don't have to deal with this health issue. 
They don't have to deal with this financial issue. The worst thing you can do is compare your life to what's going on with other people. And the wisest thing you can do is see yourself in relation to the sovereign God who controls all things. And if you're his child, he controls those things for your good. So God is sovereign. And in our praying, we should therefore approach him with humility. Also, God is awesome. So we should approach him with praise. Now, yes, I did use the word awesome in the outline. And I'll be turning 57 this week. (laughs) And I'm saying stuff that teenagers say. I know that awesome is a really overused term. But before it came to mean cool or I like that, it meant full of awe, full of reverent fear. And so verse 2 says, I've heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds. Those lines speak of an awe-filled praise. Habakkuk is praising God in that opening line when he says, I've heard of your fame. In Hebrew, it's literally, I have heard of the hearing of you. It's describing the fact that God's people in the first part of your Bible that we call the Old Testament, of which Habakkuk is a part, those people continually rehearsed for each succeeding generations the things that God had done. Throughout history, God's people had spoken of his mighty deeds. And it was this rehearsing that Habakkuk had heard. He had heard it repeated often. His father had told him what he, what he had heard from Habakkuk's grandfather, who had heard it from his father. All of the mighty deeds of God. One preacher has pointed out that rehearsing the mighty deeds of God is an essential element in worship. Throughout the Old Testament, where Habakkuk is contained, you find the mighty deeds of God being rehearsed. In fact, the word translated deeds in verse 2 is used throughout the Old Testament to refer to the work of God specifically in the Exodus. You all remember that. God's mighty hand and his mighty deeds leading his people out of the land of Egypt as they exited, as in the exodus. And there God led his people out of Egypt, and through mighty deeds he sent plagues upon Egypt. Through mighty deeds he worked through Moses as he raised his rod, and the waters were parted, and the people of Israel were delivered. And these mighty deeds were rehearsed in the ears of each succeeding generation. In fact, the exodus came to be as important to the Old Testament believer as the cross is to the New Testament believer because they were both symbols of God's delivering power. We too, friends, need to rehearse the works of God in the ears of those who follow us. We need to do it in our church and we need to do it in our homes. You can rehearse the works of God in your home in a couple of ways. A lot of ways, but here are a couple. First, by pointing to God regularly in your conversations in your home. When an issue arises, turn first to what God says about it. When your children are fearful about something, point them to the power and care and love of God. And share with them and with your spouse what God has done and is doing in your life. Now, most of you know our former assistant pastor, Matt Owen, who's now pastoring in Florida. His wife, Erica, maintains a blog some years ago while they were still serving here. She had a quote from her daughter, Stella, who was three at the time. 
When their then newborn baby Ruby would cry, Steli would say to her, don't worry, Ruby, God will take care of you. Let's see, where is she getting that? She's hearing that at home. She's hearing that at church. Rehearsing God's works in the past are a great comfort to us because God does not change. You see, if you think about it, if you think about your life and you think about the things that have gone on and the good things that have gone on in your life in the past, you can rehearse those. And it's enjoyable to think about those, but they don't necessarily see anything about the future, right, for you. Because the truth is you can't necessarily reproduce what you did or what happened in the past. But God does not change. We can reminisce about things we've done, but we can't always do them again because we do change. We get older and we get weaker. But the God who did the things recorded in Scripture and in your grandparents' lives and your parents' lives and is doing them in your life and has done them in the past still has the same undiminished power right now that he had then. And so proper prayer praises God for what he's done and then stands in awe of it. Verse 2 says, I stand in awe of your deeds. Literally, I'm afraid when I think about all you've done. Now, that doesn't sound pleasant. Here, God's done all of these awesome things, and yet he's afraid. But the Bible, remember, says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That is, the esteem that we hold for God because of who he is and what he has done for us leaves us in awe. That's a reverence for him that shapes how we approach him. When we pray to God, then, we must never forget to whom we are speaking. We should be filled with this reverence before God. I don't like it when I hear Christians, especially pastors and leaders, pray to God with a prayer that begins, thanks God for being so awesome. In the same way, we might thank a waiter for giving good service. Thanks for giving such awesome service. It's true that God bids us to come to him as Abba, Father, a term of relational intimacy made possible because we've been adopted into God's family if we belong to Jesus. But even that is not to become lighthearted and flippant. When Jesus gave us his model prayer, he said that we should address God as our Father, remember what it is, our Father in heaven. New Testament scholar D.A. Carson notes that adding in heaven reminds us of who it is we're addressing. The God of heaven and earth and everything and everyone who has condescended to become our father. So we think about God in the right way. And when we think about God in the right way, we pray to God in the right way. How we pray shows what we think about God. But also how we pray shows what we think about ourselves. Verse 3 says, repeat them in our day, in our time, make them known. That is, repeat them, these works that I've heard about, these deeds that I've heard about. And Lord, I'm asking you to do those in our day. I've heard of your works in the past and I long to see them again now. Whatever you choose to do, Lord. Now, remember, the deeds that Habakkuk had heard about included acts of both God's mercy, but also of his judgment. And yet Habakkuk is saying, Lord, 
I want to see you act in whatever ways that you deem appropriate. And so this teaches us that we're limited. So we should ask God for his will. We're limited, so we should ask for God's will. Habakkuk was saying, do as it pleases you. Accomplish your will, God. And that's because, friends, all genuine prayer focuses on the will of God. The Bible says this. This is the confidence we have in approaching God that if we ask anything, notice. So we never come demanding from God. Oh my, the blasphemy of people who say you name it and you claim it. And you tell God what to do. This is why Jesus said in the aforementioned model prayer, we often call it the Lord's Prayer. In fact, it's not a prayer of the Lord. It's the disciples' prayer. It's a prayer, a model prayer for us. As you've heard me say over the years, that prayer is not even a prayer that Jesus himself can pray because it has, as one of the petitions, forgive us our debts, that is, forgive us our sins, And Jesus, of course, had none of those. And Jesus was not, if you're from a tradition that kind of goes through the motions when it comes to prayer. And you recite, Jesus didn't say necessarily, this is what you pray. Here's what he said. This is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, you should pray prayers like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come and notice your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I heard the story of a pastor who was talking to someone about prayer and the individual was trying to convince him that prayer changes God's mind. The pastor was trying to convince that person prayer does not change God's mind. Finally, the individual responded, well, if prayer doesn't change God's mind, then you should just pray your will be done. (laughs) To which the pastor said, yeah, I think you got it now. One preacher has pointed out that genuine prayer is seeking to bring our wills in tune with God's will. And we see that here in Habakkuk. He began by challenging God, but now in chapter 3, he's in essence praying, your will be done. And we see this in the life of the Lord Jesus on the night before he died in that hour of agony in the Garden of Gethsemane. We find him on his face before God crying out, not my will, but your will be done. And from his example of prayer that night, there are two facts we can remember about our prayer lives so that we can promote the will of God in our prayers. The first is this, to pray your will be done may bring pain. When Habakkuk prayed your will be done, he knew that God's past deeds included times of difficulty and judgment. And that God had said in chapter 1 that judgment was in fact coming. But he still believed God's will was best, whatever that might entail. And when Jesus prayed, your will be done, he was looking ahead to the next day when he was to be crucified. To pray, your will be done, may bring prayer uh, pain. Secondly, to pray, your will be done, assumes that God's will is always best. See, when you pray that, when we pray like that, we are saying, God, that's what I want. I want what's best, and I know you know what's best. Therefore, I want your will. 
And whatever God allows into our lives, we have to always remember that he sees all, he knows that it's best, and he's using it for our good if we belong to him in Jesus. We can say with confidence, though life may seem uncertain from our limited perspective, this one thing we know, God's will, is always best. So how we pray shows what we think of ourselves. If we believe and understand our own limitations, we'll pray for the will of the unlimited, all-knowing God to be done. We're limited, so we should ask for God's will. And we are sinful, so we should ask for God's mercy. Verse 3, in wrath, remember mercy. Mercy is compassion given to someone who deserves judgment. Mercy is God's favor extended to those who don't deserve it. Grace is giving what we, and so you may ask, well, what's the difference between mercy and grace? They'll sound the, the same. Grace is giving us what we do not deserve. Mercy is not giving us what we do deserve. Grace is giving us what we do not deserve. Mercy is withholding from us what we, in fact, do deserve. Verse 3 says, in wrath, remember mercy. Habakkuk, who was earlier saying, we're better than those guys. He's now resigned to the truth that even if we're relatively good. That is, we're good relative to other people. And that's true for every person here. Unless it happens that in this room, walk today the worst person in the world on earth. I'm willing to hazard that we're all relatively good. That is, relative to someone else, we're all good. But here's the problem. None of us is good relative to God. And so God can always be just in judging us. We cannot rightly complain about judgment we deserve, but we can ask for mercy. In Daniel chapter 9, Daniel offered a similar prayer for his nation in days that were not unlike those of Habakkuk's day. He prayed, now our God, hear the prayers and petitions of your servant. For your sake, O Lord, look with favor on your desolate sanctuary. Give ear, O God, and hear, open your eyes and see the desolation of the city that bears your name, Jerusalem. We do not make requests of you because we are righteous, but because of your great mercy. O Lord, listen. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, hear and act. For your sake, O my God, do not delay because your city and your people bear your name. Daniel prayed rightly for his nation. He prayed like Habakkuk, repeat your works, not for our sake, because we deserve nothing, but for your sake, in keeping with your own character, extend mercy. We can pray, and friends, we should pray for our nation in this way. Asking God to do his will, which includes judging our evil, but also asking him to grant mercy in keeping with his character. And likewise, in our own lives, we honestly acknowledge our sin before God, but we ask his mercy to spare us from its consequences, if it be his will. Jesus told the story of a man who understood that this is how you approach God. He told a story about a man who went up to the temple to pray. He was a tax collector. And so he was hated and he was despised because he was an arm of the Roman government. And most of the tax collectors were, frankly, thieves who would extort money from the people. But this man had come to realize what he was. 
And when he went to the temple, this is what he said. Jesus said of him, the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but he beat his breast and he said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Now, if you can see that at the bottom, if you go back to the other one, if you see that at the bottom, I've highlighted just before the last word, the word a, because in Greek, the language your New Testament was written in, that's not actually what he said. It's actually written this way. God, have mercy on me. The sinner. One author says, you see, if you think of sin externally and comparatively, that's the way most of us think of it, isn't it? Sin is what I overtly do. And I haven't killed anybody and I haven't stolen from anybody. And I've from time to time helped an old woman across the street. So even the bad things I've done, that kind of balances out. And you're kind of weighing it all and looking at it externally and comparatively that is relative to other people. When you think of sin that way, then there's always someone who's committed more sins than you. And you're counting sins in effect. And who's got more and and who's got bigger sins. And therefore, you're only ever a sinner. You're never the sinner. But this man was thinking... Not of sin in discrete terms that you can count each sin and weigh each sin. He's thinking of it in absolute terms. What he's saying is, all I know is I'm lost and where everybody else is doesn't matter. And so he doesn't come at God with religion and in his prayer list all that he's done. He asks for mercy. Why? Because he understands himself properly. And how we pray shows what we think about ourselves. Your take-home truth is that how we pray demonstrates what we think about God and ourselves. Friends, as we conclude, I wonder how many of you came into this room. If you acknowledge God at all, you think that you can approach God with your own spiritual resume. Friends, there is no such person. And if there were such a person, then God would not have had to come to earth as man and die a cruel death on the cross to pay for your sin and my sin. The reason that had to happen and the reason the cross that hangs behind me is absolutely contrary to that thinking. That I am going to stand before God and he's going to weigh my good and my bad. And I know my good is going to outweigh my bad. And he's going to let me into heaven. The cross contradicts all of that. If that were true, God could just give you a list of rules and say, have at it. And then we'll see how well everyone does at the judgment. No, friends, every one of us is lost before a holy God. And therefore, every one of us needs the payment that can only be made by that holy God. And there's only been one payment ever made for sin that takes every sin you will ever commit, every thought you will ever think that is contrary to the mind of God. Your sins and my sins are too numerous to ever count. And not only do our sins include the things that we do and the things that we think and the things that we say, they also include sins of omission, things that we fail to do and think and say that we were supposed to. Good luck with that. 
Because of that, there is only one payment that can pay for your sin and my sin that separates us from God. And it was made by God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, when he came and died on the cross. And so what are you to do? You're to receive that. You receive, you ask for it. And you'll only ask for it if you have the requisite humility to say, I know who I am. And you come before God like that tax collector. I bring nothing to you except my sin. I ask from you what only you can provide. The payment for my sin by Jesus on the cross. And so here's what you do. You realize that you're a sinner. You recognize that Christ has died on the cross for your sin. You repent of your sin. Repenting of your sin means I'm going to go your way now, God, no longer my way. I'm going to humble myself before you. You receive Jesus Christ into your life. You do that for the asking. He who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So we're going to bow in prayer in just a moment. And when we, and when we do, I encourage you to pray a prayer from your heart to God in your own words, like that man who went to the temple and say, Lord, be merciful to me, the sinner. Give me the benefit of what Jesus did on the cross. Forgive me and I give my life to you. Those of us who know the Lord, let's think about the way we pray. Let's think about who he is. Let's think about who we are and how that should shape the words that we speak to him. Let's bow together. Our Father in heaven, indeed your name, that is your character, is holy. And it's our desire that your character be extolled throughout your world, that your name be made holy in your world. Hallowed be your name. Lord, because we know what you are like and we see the world around us, we know that they are contrary to one another. We know that we live in a fallen world that does not reflect your perfection. And so we long for the time that you will return and sin will be done away and all of its vestiges and all of its consequences, your kingdom come. Lord, in the midst of all of our circumstances here, and in this room there are a myriad of circumstances represented, all of them orchestrated by your sovereign hand. But I don't know them all. You know every last one of them and what you're accomplishing in them. And because you are not only a sovereign God, but a good God, we pray your will be done. Lord, we ask you to forgive us. Forgive us as we forgive others. Help those of us, as our brother preached last week, who have been forgiven to be forgiving people. May we demonstrate in our lives the forgiveness that we've received from Jesus by pursuing reconciliation with others in our spheres of contact. And Lord, we ask you to give us each day enough for that day. Because it comes to us from your hand. You are the God who made it all. You're the God who owns it all. You're the God who controls it all. And so we humbly come before you and we say, Lord, we ask you to give us what we need. And only what we need, not more, so that we can carry out the work that you've given us to do. And Lord, in acknowledging in humility our own susceptibility, our vulnerability to sin, we ask you to lead us not, that is, keep us away from temptation. 
Keep the tempter away from us. Keep his devices away from us. Because, Lord, we are susceptible to them. You told the Apostle Peter that Satan has asked to sift you, Peter, as wheat. He could sift me as wheat were it not for your guarding hand and loving hand over me. And so lead us not into temptation, Lord, but deliver us from the evil one. Lord, we thank you that you have given us these and so many other petitions to bring before you. You're the God who hears. You're the God who can respond. I pray that you will hear our prayer. Transform our prayer as we think about you and we think about ourselves and we align our words accordingly. And Lord, I ask you, I ask you, we can't demand anything of you, we ask you. In this sacred moment, move upon the hearts of some in this room who've come defying you. Good people, relatively good people, outstanding people in many cases, who are nevertheless defying you. Oh, Holy Spirit, break open the hearts of those who do not know you, but desperately need you. Draw them to yourself. Save them as you have saved us. Transform them from the inside out so that they now live lives not for themselves, but for the one who made them and owns them by right of creation and redemption. We will give you the praise. In Jesus' name, amen.